All right, Matthew chapter 13, we are working our way through the parables of the kingdom uh, that Jesus told to his followers. And we are on the seventh parable. Technically, this is the last one in the series. Some people count the last part of our passage as parable number eight, but I don't like number eight, so it's only seven uh, parables according to me and lots of other people. So Matthew chapter 13, this is the seventh parable. We're going to look at this together. One point that I really want you to hold on to that will help us in reading other parables of Jesus is this understanding of what is a parable. It's so much more than just an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It's so much more than just uh, a preacher's kind of illustrative story that he tells, like I do. That's why we have children as preachers sometimes, right? So that we have stories to tell, or at least you have a niece or a nephew that you can bank on. Uh, Jesus told these stories with a much greater purpose. In fact, these stories, it might surprise us, were not meant to make things clearer for everyone. It was actually, as you read through the passage in Matthew chapter 13, it was actually meant to create some confusion. Jesus said to his disciples that the knowledge of the secrets, the mystery of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you, but not to them. Who's the them? Well, the them are those who have ears but cannot hear, right? And we're not talking about those who are naturally deaf. We're talking about those who aren't paying attention, But for those who have ears to hear, Jesus shares the secrets of the kingdom. And parables are meant to create that little bit of a distinction. Who's paying attention? Who's desiring to listen? Every parent and those who are around kids knows some people that have ears but don't hear, right? Children all secretly wear a t-shirt that says, I'm not deaf, I'm just ignoring you. And that's kind of what Jesus is talking about. There's a whole group of people, they hear his voice, but because their hearts are so against him and moving in a different direction that they can't receive the words that he's saying. So we want to be the kind of people that pay attention, right? We want people not to my voice, but to the voice of Jesus. We want to listen so that we might receive these secrets of the kingdom as well. But it's even more than that. It's more than just Jesus kind of creating a bit of a dividing line of those who are paying attention to those who aren't. But it's also a way for Jesus to insult his enemies. (laughs) It's a a, a figure of political speech. This is a way of Jesus being able to talk in language and those who actually catch some of the words suddenly go, wait a minute, I think he's talking about us. And Jesus says, no, no, I was just telling about, you know, a farmer who was going out and scattering some seed. And so it's a way to embed kind of political speech and to take a dig at some of his enemies. And so this is what parables are doing. Parables come in slants. They come in sideways. They catch us off guard. They're meant to disrupt us just enough to put us off balance just enough that we change direction. And in this case, that we change direction in our thinking on the kingdom. And that's so important because the original audience, those who were hearing Jesus' voice, would have thought of the kingdom in a certain way. They were hoping for the restoration of the glory of the kingdom of Israel. They were hoping for swords and shields and spears and the overthrow physically of the Roman occupation. 
That's what they were hoping for. And when Jesus came along and said, no, no, see this kingdom, this little thing I'm doing here, it's a seed that's going to grow. And those that were paying attention went, oh, we need to rethink this whole kingdom thing. So remember, just because Jesus uses the language of empire doesn't mean that he holds the value of human empire. He's actually calling us to something radically different. And so we need to pay attention. We need to be prepared to be, you know, confused a little bit, to be put off of our, our axis so that we can change direction and move with Jesus. Ultimately, the parables are a form of self-revelation. When Jesus talks about the parables of the kingdom, really he's telling stories about himself, his message, and his kingdom. This is what he's saying to people. So that great parable of the sower that we have heard of, I hope, before, or you can read it at the beginning of, of Matthew chapter 13, when the sower goes out to sow and there's four different soil types, Jesus is talking about himself and his message and the fact that 75% of the field, the world, would reject him, that he will be the rejected one and his kingdom will be rejected. And so you get the idea. Here's the thing. I think that we've been taught culturally, through school, through reinforced values over long periods of time, we've been taught to assume that the solution to our problems, our salvation, can actually be found within the confines of our world, right? Stay with me on this thought for a moment. We, we've been taught that just a little more knowledge, if we just knew a little bit more, we'd be able to solve issues in the world. You know, if we can just get this AI thing really on track, Skynet will form and we'll, no, don't, if you might know that reference. But, uh, but if we just have this little more knowledge, right? If we just knew the secret to cancer, if we just knew that somehow over time, humanity will discover through science all the solutions to the world's problems. And it hasn't happened, in fact, we can go see some movies today that show that the opposite has happened through our scientific discoveries, right? Or we think that maybe just a little more money, that the solution lies in creating a little bit more wealth, and if we distribute it properly, then we'll have solutions to our problems, you know? If we just had a little more wealth to buy Twitter and fix it, you know, then it, all the, the problems of the world would be solved. Just a little more money, or, or perhaps, it's, it's just a little more humanity. If we're just kinder to one another. And, and that hasn't worked out either, to be honest. The Bible claims that our solutions aren't to be found within the confines of our world, of our humanity. But actually, the solution lies beyond us. And it requires God's revelation to us. That's why we need revelation. We are people of revelation. <laughs> that truth has been revealed to us, and that truth looks like a person. That as Jesus comes, he is the ultimate revelation of God and shows us the way, the truth, and the life. And that's the solution we need. That's the savior we need. That's the, the way forward that sometimes we forget about. Because we end up trying everything else, and then finally we pray, God, help, right? Do you ever do that? I do that. But the way, the truth, and life is the revelation of God in Christ. 
And that's what we desperately need. And so this, through the parables, is the self-revelation of Jesus. And it shows us the way forward. And that way is this radical kingdom that I think for me personally, I'm always just feeling like I'm getting close to, and then it kind of slips through my fingers. But we keep striving forward toward that goal of understanding the kingdom. So let's read the passage today, Matthew chapter 13, uh, verses 47 to 52, uh, the seventh parable in the parables of the kingdom. And uh, this, is, this, is a good one. this is a good one here. Okay, Matthew 13, verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a fishing net that was thrown into the water and caught fish of every kind. When the net was full, they dragged it up onto the shore, sat down, and sorted the good fish into crates, but threw the bad ones away. That is the way it will be at the end of the world. The angels will come and separate the wicked people from the righteous, throwing the wicked into the fiery furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do you understand all these things? Yes, they said, we do. The disciples lied. I just straight up. They didn't understand that. I just, I'm just putting that out there. I mean, you read the rest of what happens with them and their confusion, but I think they were just like, yes, Jesus, we get it. And he's like, yeah, you don't. Not yet, but thanks for trying. Okay, verse 52. Then he added, every teacher of religious law who becomes a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like a homeowner who brings from his storeroom new gems of truth as well as old. Okay, wow. There's some wild stuff in this parable, right? Uh, there's gnashing of teeth. That should get our attention at least. Um, this parable is kind of similar uh, to the parable of the weeds, if you remember that. Parable of the weeds, the, uh, the farmer goes out, sows good seed, it grows, uh, starts to grow a crop, but an enemy comes along at night and sows some weeds, and the weeds grow, and the servants are like, hey, let's get rid of these weeds right now. Let's just yank them up. And the landowner says, wait a minute, I do not trust you guys to tell a weed from a wheat because they look very similar. So leave it alone because you are going to destroy the place trying to tear out the weeds. In the end, I'll sort it out, but leave the judgment side of things to me, right? The church over the years has been like those servants. Let's yank out the weeds. Let's go on our witch hunt. Who's the group today that we're going to target and try and get rid of, right? And we do so much damage because we don't pay attention to the way of the kingdom. And in our rush to judgment, we damage the lives of people and we damage the church. And so this is a warning to us to be careful and let God sort things out because ultimately the judge of all the earth will do what? What is right? Because we can't. So that's something to keep in mind, and there's a similarity here to this parable as well. There is a gathering, and there is a sorting. And so we're just going to look at those two main ideas uh, together briefly today. The first main idea is this. The kingdom of God is expansive. It's expansive. That's the word I want to use. It's it just, it, the, we need to expand our horizons when we begin to think about the kingdom of God. And in fact, according to this parable of the net, it's far more inclusive than people would be comfortable with, generally speaking. 
We were camping the last couple of days, those who are friends with me on Facebook, it's nice to have friends, uh, saw some photos I posted, and Christy and I got away on the motorbike, and we went uh, camping a couple of nights uh, just down at Lundbrook Falls. And in the early morning, I got up and had my coffee and sat by the river, and I watched the fly fishermen. I don't fly fish, I barely fish, um, I eat fish. So if you're a fisherman, please send some my way. But fly fishing to me is just poetic. There's just something. I'm, the guys never seem to be very productive, but they seem to be having a good time doing it. Um, so they're out there and the, the water's flowing, it's beautiful, and there's this guy, he's got gear like crazy. Like those fish that he ever catches, if he's allowed to keep them, are expensive fish. <laughs> like when you add up all his gear. So he's there fly fishing and it's beautiful, it's poetic. It's, uh, it's quite enthralling to watch, actually. But here's the thing about that guy standing there. He is looking for a special kind of fish. In that particular river, the Crow's Nest River, he's looking for trout. Ideally, rainbow trout. Delicious. Um, but he can't, probably can't keep them. But he's looking for rainbow trout. And so he's not interested in the other fish. He's not interested in the little fish. He's not interested in the rubber boot that's floating down. He's not interested in everything else. He has a specific rod and a specific fly. He is like a surgeon as a fisherman looking for one particular kind of fish. That is not the kingdom of God. As I watched him, I thought, wow, what a difference. This is not the kingdom of God, this is not a good image. When you hear Jesus saying, come and I'll make you fishers of men. This fly fisherman, as beautiful as it is, is not what Jesus had in mind. Instead, he had in mind something way more messy, a giant net that you throw out and you drag in together the drag net and it pulls in all kinds of fish and maybe the rubber boot and the tire and the leftover garbage and everything else. And it all comes on to the shore. That's the image of the kingdom of heaven. I would much rather have the fly fishing image because then I can select the people that I like, the people that think the same way as me, the people that have the same values and ideals, the people of the same social economic status, all the kind of things. And then, and then we have a better chance of kind of being together in a happy family if I can select like the fly, fly fisherman. But that is not the kingdom. We don't actually get to choose. I mean, it looks like that when you look at our different churches sometimes because we tend to group together. But if we have an expansive view of the kingdom, we see how diverse it ends up being. And that's the idea. Uh, Robert Farrar Capon, he said this, if the kingdom works like a dragnet, gathering every kind, the church as the sacrament of the kingdom should avoid the temptation to act like a sport fisherman who is interested only in speckled trout and hand-tied flies. It's kind of interesting. It just kind of resonated with me as I watched that fly fisherman last couple of days. Well, the original listeners that heard Jesus talk about the dragnet Maybe one of the groups of people that they thought about were the Gentiles. I mean, these Gentiles, non-Jewish people, were considered to be unclean. And so it would be shocking to think that this net was going to bring them in as well. I mean, what do we do with that? The church really struggled over how do they adapt to this whole group of people they were taught to be unclean. But I think it goes beyond that. Generally, I think it also includes all the people whom the religious leaders had determined 
to be unpure, unclean, unacceptable, the so-called sinners. You know, the groups of people that Jesus actually spent time with, that Jesus ate with. He was called a friend of the sinners. And for the religious people, it was a, an identifying group of people that didn't measure up to the standards that had been set by the religious establishment. And Jesus is saying, hey, this kingdom net is bringing in the sinners. It's bringing them all in. And so the church, as an agency of the kingdom, and hopefully we understand that, we are not the kingdom sitting here. Thank goodness. Because it's, it's way more diverse than we see in any local congregation. But the church as an agency of the kingdom is to reflect this general principle, to be open to all. And that's part of what we see here. But not every church will reach every kind of people. I know that uh, Eric was downtown just this last week with the youth serving with the mustard seed. And some of our fellow churches that are downtown, they have a different group in their congregation because they're connected to their local community. And that's important. We have four churches still meeting here, at least until the end of the year. And the four different churches, the reason we don't all you know, merge and become one uh, not so mega church, even if we all gathered together, we wouldn't be as big as First Alliance or anything like that. But if we all gathered together, uh, we would lose the ability to connect with the different groups of people that those churches are serving. So we need to have this expansive kingdom view that we just hold one corner of the net, but that we're pulling together with so many other churches and congregations in this great diversity and that Jesus, by the gospel, is bringing in all kinds of fish. And the good news is, we don't have to sort them out. We don't have to sort them out. So the kingdom of God is expansive. But here's the darker, more sinister, sinister side of the passage, right? And I have to talk about it, even though I don't really want to. The second part of the passage is this. Not only is the kingdom of God expansive, judgment is coming, Judgment is coming, not our judgment. We don't, we don't sit in the seat of judgment over people, but ultimately God is going to sort out. He's going to do a kind of sorting in the end. And there's these images, the blazing furnace, the weeping, the wailing, and the gnashing of teeth. And right away, our minds go straight to hell, right? <laughs> and that, that's what we've been taught. Those are the images that we, that we lean on and rely on and are terrified of. I remember going as a kid to the drive-in theater in West Bank, BC, and uh, my parents subjected me to a, um, a movie, was it called a movie? I guess, called The Late Great Planet Earth. And I was terrified for weeks to come, still have images and therapy I've had to go through after watching some of those kind of things. And so this is difficult. We uh, had a member of the congregation, of course, many of you will still remember, Bill Buzan, who's no longer with us. Bill Buzan was a joke master. Anybody who knew Bill? I would go uh, out for breakfast with Bill, and I always had to wait for him as he made the rounds telling the joke of the day. Now, most of Bill's jokes, most of them, I could tell in public. Not all, but most of them. But Bill was quite a character, and he loved to tell me this joke about an Irish preacher and politician by the name of Ian Paisley. 
And he told this story about Ian Paisley preaching on hell, hell, fire, and brimstone, right? That's Ian Paisley's bread and butter. He's gone and passed away now. But he'd be preaching on hell and fire and weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. And this kind little old lady came up afterwards and said, but Mr. Paisley, I have no teeth. And he said, teeth will be provided. And we laugh at that. And yet, when we think about it, that's a horrific answer, right? What does that do with our image of God, right? When we have this sort of image of the sweeping and wailing gnashing of teeth. So I just want to caution us to be careful with some of the apocalyptic imagery and metaphor that Jesus uses to issue warnings, and we don't have time to unpack all of that statement, but I'm just going to sow a little bit of a seed there for you to think through as we rethink the kingdom. Because sometimes some of our images from Jewish apocalyptic uh, metaphors are mixed with Dante's Inferno, and that actually informs our view of hell more of Scripture. Okay, I'll leave it there, and you can unpack it on your own. But here's what I want to point to. Who was Jesus warning? Who was Jesus warning in all of this? Because it is a warning. There's no doubt. Jesus is giving a warning to some group of people um, that, you know, they might be on the uh, castaway side of the sorting at the end time in judgment. And I think if it were up to us, we have a list of those that we would like to cast aside. We have historical figures. We might have a neighbor or a family member that we wouldn't mind seeing tossed out of the net. But who is Jesus warning? Remember, the kingdom of God is upside down. And so when we begin to understand this, we see Jesus actually showing kindness and kind words to the very people that the religious leaders would like to see cast out. Who are those people? The tax collectors? Those that were serving the Roman authority? What did Jesus say? Come and follow me. I'm coming to your house to eat tonight, right? Those are the kind of words that Jesus used for the tax collectors. What about the prostitutes and the adulterer? He said, does no one condemn you? Neither do I, right? He saved those kind words. The thief that all the religious leaders thought should be cast out. What do you say? Today, you're going to be with me in paradise. The blind, the lepers, the outsiders, the foreigners, Jesus saved his softest, kindest words for the very people that we think should be cast out. And certainly the religious leaders thought should be cast out. So who was Jesus warning? Who was he judging? I think it's very clear in this passage and in many other passages that he was judging and warning the religious leaders and the teachers of the law. And if you want proof of that, Today, go home and read with caution Matthew chapter 23. But do it in this way. You know, sometimes you can place yourself in the text. We are the religious establishment. <laughs> Often we like to think of ourselves on the margins. We're not, but we like to think of ourselves so we can hear the kind word of Jesus. But it's difficult, and this is a difficult exercise, go home and hear the challenging warning words of Jesus. This is what Jesus said to the religious leaders. The teachers of religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. So practice and obey whatever they tell you, but don't follow their example, for they don't practice what they, what they teach. 
They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. Everything they do is for show. On their arms, they wear extra-wide prayer boxes with scripture verses inside, and they wear robes with extra-long tassels, and they love to sit at the head table at banquets and in the seats of honor in the synagogues. They love to recite respectful, receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces and to be called rabbis. They have a sense that Jesus is building up. All the way through then, in the rest of this passage, he gives warnings to them. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, and you won't go in yourselves, and you don't let others enter either. The warning I think that Jesus gives, the hellfire and brimstone, is not reserved for the people that are obviously sinners. It's for those who think they're not. It's for those that think they're safe for those that think they have control of the religious systems. And that's the challenge that Jesus gives uh, during these times. So this is a way, this parable is a way for Jesus to criticize and shake up Israel's leaders who don't accept God's revelation of the kingdom. And instead, they're heading for destruction. Because what are they doing? They're starting to stir the people up. Grab your torch and pitchforks. We're going to overthrow Rome. We're going to meet the power of empire with the power of our own empire. And in the end, historically, they lose. Because in AD 70, Rome completely destroys Jerusalem and the temple. And there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth because of that. Because they didn't listen to Jesus who said, the kingdom is not of this world. You don't meet force with force. You meet force with love. And that's a whole different kind of force, a whole different kind of power. But even in the end, at the end of this passage, there's hope even for the religious leaders. And uh, at the very end, we read, every teacher of religious law who becomes a disciple, there's still room. And there were many that became disciples of Jesus. It becomes a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like a homeowner. It's a great word, oikonomos. We get the word economics actually from it. Household manager, a teacher of religious law who becomes a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a homeowner who brings from his storeroom new gems of truth as well as old. Jesus wasn't discarding the law. He wasn't discarding the teaching. He was just directing it toward the appropriate understanding of the kingdom of heaven. And those that got it were well received within the kingdom. So, in this parable, Jesus expands our understanding of the radical, radical inclusivity of the kingdom of God, but he also challenges us not to think of ourselves as better than others, and so find ourselves on the outside of that net. Personally, as I've re reflected on this and struggled with some of the imagery uh, the last few weeks, I've been challenged, first of all, to embrace those whom I want to discard from my life. That's tough. To recognize that God has brought a lot of people in my life, and, and, and some of those people, nobody's sitting here today, by the way, some of those people I just don't like, right? <laughs> and some of the people I clash with, some of the people I don't get along with. And how do I find a way in love to actually recognize and embrace those that are coming into my life? But also personally, when I read this parable, I am so relieved. 
I'm so relieved that I don't have to sort out this mess of what the kingdom net has brought onto the shore because that sounds exhausting. I don't have to do it. What a relief, right? What a relief that we don't have to sit in judgment of our neighbors or the people in the pew beside us or, or the people around us. That We're relieved of that duty. We're relieved of that burden that God has taken it for us. And what a freedom to simply be able to love and learn to love and let God sort it out in the end. All we have to do is cast the large gospel net, at least our part of it. Lots of other people have their hands on that net and are casting it. And we do that by proclaiming the good news of God's grace and favor to all. Well, let's end with a quote again from Robert Farrar Capon. He says this, People always assume that the church's primary business is to teach morality. Did you grow up with that assumption? That's we are the moral bastion of society. We are the moral compass of society. And it's our responsibility to keep this world on track. But he goes on to say, but it isn't. It's to proclaim grace, forgiveness, and the free party for all. It's to announce the reconciling relationship of God to everybody and to invite them simply to believe it and to celebrate it. That's our task. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you've relieved us of the task of jury duty. That we don't have to sit in judgment of one another or our neighbors. That we can trust you, the judge of all the earth, to do what is right. And I think we'll be surprised in the end with what you do. Father, thank you for your love for us. Help us to proclaim that love. Help us to walk in the light of that love. And we recognize that we, we just mess up so much. But thank you that you've brought us into this kingdom. Help us to walk in the way, the truth, and the life that is your son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.